0: Happy Resurrection morning, <laughs> uh, Easter to those who don't perhaps understand what it's all about. This is the first time in 45, 46 years we haven't uh, celebrated, or I haven't celebrated Easter uh, with a group of believers. And uh, this is the first time in many years uh, that we haven't been in Freedom Hall Civic Center. And we usually have uh, gathered there anywhere between two and 3,000 people. So Linda and Matt and I stepped out on the porch here a little while ago and saw all those cars out there and the parking lot packed and all our brothers and sisters, and it moved all three of us to tears. You know, I think if anything else Matt said this, um, fellowshipping like this makes us really appreciate church when we can be together. Perhaps when all this is over with, we won't want to miss a minute of fellowshipping together. Uh, If you're out there in the parking lot, we do hope you'll stay in your cars, that's the whole intent, because uh, we want to see this virus done away with. We, uh, and I think the best way to do that, if we can get a grasp on it by uh, keeping our distance and staying hunkered down, uh, I believe we'll, we'll, we'll beat this thing. You know uh, i believe all this is indicators for the end of times i know everybody's saying that and i know there's a lot of uh, conspiracy theories going around situations but uh, too many things here within the very few years past that uh, as luke 21 says when you see these things start to happen uh, look up because your redemption draws nigh uh, when I look outside in the parking lot and see all that fellowship out there, even though we're isolated in our, our cages, uh, it still makes me think that I uh, can't wait till we get home and fellowship together. As, as God's Holy Word tells us, there'll be no more sadness, no more crying, no more tears, no more death and dying. For these are the former things, and they have passed away. Uh, when we're at Freedom Hall for some time during our Resurrection Sunday program, we tried to approach uh, the resurrection, the Passion Week, if you will, from a different perspective. For example, one year we uh, looked at it through the eyes of the centurion soldier. We've looked at it through the eyes of Pilate. We've looked at it uh, through the eyes of Simon Peter. And one year we looked at it through the eyes of Jesus' mother Mary. And we're me to think of this song. I don't claim to be a, a a musician, but I love the lyrics of this song, and perhaps you'll you'll like it too. Since that blessed night in a manger, she watched her baby grow. Seems like yesterday he was in her arms. Where did the time go? He learned his father's trade as she marveled at it all. The sweat dropped from her little carpenter as he made the timbers fall. She can hear the driving nails upon the hillside. As she prays that his spirit will not fail. Takes a father's will and she stands and listens to the driving bells a child can get lost in the streets of Jerusalem she was frantic as she looked for him until she began to hear the hammers up at the temple she called him as she ran Right, she found him teaching like no other wooden man. She had human driving nails upon the hillside. And she prayed that his spirit would not fail. She watches as her young man undertakes the Father's will. And she stands and listens to the driving nail. Darkness covered all the land in the middle of the day. She began to tremble as the earth began to quake. Hammers, nails, and timbers on the carpenter's trade, made the sound that pierced her soul as the cross was being raised. She could hear the driving nails upon the hillside. And she prayed that his spirit would not fail. She watches as her young man undertakes the Father's will. And she stands and listens to the driving mill And she cries as she hears the driving That Mary was to the world. He was hated and despised to those who were his followers. He was loved. But to Mary, she was his little, he was her little boy. Uh, here recently, I asked uh, Matt, I said, I was on our website and I was trying to. Somebody asked me about a particular sermon. I was trying to tell them where to find it, the date and all that. So I, I went to our sermon's website and nothing was there. It was all gone. I called Matt. I said, son, I went to our website and uh, I looked up sermons and there's nothing there. What's going on? He said, dad, uh, I didn't want to tell you, but they had some trouble with the computers here a while back and they lost everything. All the sermons were gone. Uh, Linda said, well, about five, six years ago, we put everything on DVD. So uh, apparently the last five years has uh, disappeared. And I thought about it. I thought about all the hours, uh, the prayers, the studies that went into each teaching and the different peoples whose lives were changed by it. And I thought, that's, that's gone. But you know, uh, at my age, through all these many years I've been a pastor, approximately 45 years I've been a full-time pastor, if there's one thing that I'd like to get across to everybody is what's being said and talked today. Resurrection Sunday. And the, when I came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of my life, I'll never forget how it came about. For one year, my life was hell on earth. And two words were on my mind that I, I just didn't know the answer to: personal savior. I'd heard it, and people I called Bible thumpers would come up to me and say, "Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior?" Oh yeah, and yeah, I was baptized when I was eight years old. But all of a sudden, in this one year's time, those two words like to drive me crazy: personal savior. And I thought, how could Jesus be my personal savior? He lived two thousand years ago. And I live now. And my wife was going to church at the time and her pastor come by my office to see me. I said, come in. I said, I'm going to ask you something. I said, probably every little five-year-old up there at your church knows the answer to this. I said, "It's driving me crazy. He said, what's that? I said, "Could you tell me? How could Jesus be my personal Savior? He lived 2,000 years ago. I live now. I can understand personal. He died in the place of somebody else who was standing there. For example, if somebody came into this room and they were going to shoot you and I jumped in front of them and took the shot, I would have died for you personally. So how have you been my personal Savior? Well, I didn't know at the time. There are different preachers. There are preachers who believe the Bible is truth from Genesis to Revelation. And there are those who will say, yes, I believe the Bible contains truth. That's completely different. They don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. Well, I do. I believe from Genesis to Revelation, it is the inspired, inherited, infallible, authoritative, sufficient, efficient word of God. And so when he left, I closed the door to my office and I thought, even a preacher can't tell me. And I shut the door and I looked up the ceiling and I said, Lord, God, how can you be my personal Savior? And bang, in a moment, it, it was just clear, crystal clear to me. Didn't hear any voices, no bells, nothing like that. But here's what the Lord laid on my heart. Jesus is God incarnate. God knows everything. Past, present, and future. And so when Jesus was on the cross, he looked past the crowds, Mother Mary, John the beloved disciple, people who were hurling insults at him, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. He looked past and he looked into the future because see, a day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And he looked forward into time As he hung on the cross He saw me He saw you And it was personal It was like time was an accordion And it collapsed And I was there That reminds me of this Were you there When they crucified My Lord Were you there when they crucified my Lord oh, 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 sometimes it causes me to tremble Tremble, tremble Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they laid Him in the tomb were you there when they lay him in the tomb oh sometimes it causes me to tremble 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 were you there when they lay him in the tomb were you there when the sun was rolled away Were you there When the sun was rolled away Oh, oh, oh. Sometimes it calls me To tremble, tremble, tremble Were you there When they rolled away the stone? Were you there when he came forth from the tomb? Were you there when he came forth from the tomb? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when he came forth? From the tomb. If you understand salvation, you were there. Maybe not physically, but you were there in the sight of God. And he paid it all. It was said uh, that one time a great theologian by the name of Carl Barth was asked the question, if you had a camera, at the time, a video And you had it in front of the tomb of Jesus Christ on the first day of the week, the morning of the first day of the week. And it was running. What would you have got on your camera? Would you have got on your camera the stone rolling away and Jesus coming forth? Now here's this great theologian who was asked that question and he hung his head and didn't answer Because to him... Christ's resurrection was symbolic. He believed that every time we talk about Jesus, we bring Him up or resurrect Him in our thoughts and in our mind. But as far as a real, physical resurrection of Jesus, he didn't believe it. And Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 15, If there is no resurrection, we of all people are most miserable. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ indeed rose from the dead and he did it for me and he did it for you. Years ago, I read a story, a true story uh, that may surprise you, but a man by the name of John Griffith, he had a very unique job. The job that he had was that he controlled a trestle of a train track. You see, it crossed a river, and uh, what he would have to do is he would have to move that track parallel to the river in case there were a boat coming by. And then, after the boat passed, and if there were a train coming, he would move the track back over in place and lock it down so the train uh, could speed over. So one day he was there and he knew there was the 125, the Memphis Express, that was coming through. And so he took his little boy with him and he was uh, inside the uh, cab uh, of the trestle. And he uh, looked way down the track and it started flashing, which was an indicator that the train was about a mile out. And so he's getting ready to, he's trying to get the uh, Bridge locked down in place. And he gets it in place, but it won't lock down. And uh, he's trying his best to get it locked down. Well, off in the distance, he saw the smoke from the train coming. And he was trying feverishly to get it to lock down. He knew if he didn't get it locked down, there could be hundreds of people died This is a passenger train. The little boy he took with him. He just happened to glance down through the window out of the cab of that uh, trestle, and he saw a little boy playing in the gears down there, massive, huge gears. And so he he sent a signal, a red signal, started flashing to let the brakeman know on the train that he needed to stop. That there was trouble. He thought surely that would stop it. He couldn't. He couldn't move that with his little boy down there. Well. For some reason, the brakeman didn't see the signal. Uh, he kept coming. The man realized that if he didn't lock it down, if he didn't get the gears to move to force it down, hundreds of people would die. And even his son would die in that situation because it would plow into the existing bridge. And he was devastated by his decision. He buried his face in his arm. And he pushed the throttle. He held it firmly. The train come whizzing by. And he looked up at the train. He could see people inside the train reading the newspaper? Laughing, having dinner. And he was thinking, you don't know. The sacrifice that was made for your life today. Can you imagine as he walked home to tell his wife. The sacrifice they had made to save the lives of others. If you can understand that. If you can understand the pain that God the Father had. When he allowed his only begotten son to die. I want to read a passage of scripture to you here, from John chapter eighteen, verse four. It's just a a small passage of scripture. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? Whom seek ye? And I'll put it to you this morning: Who do you seek? Do you have a Jesus of your own making that is uh, a genie that you want to bless your shopping list or just enough faith to help you in time of troubles? Or do you know the true Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present? Do you know the true Jesus, the one who is loving, merciful, compassionate, but yet the one who will come to judge the living? do you know the true Jesus and not a Jesus of your making? We read here, it said that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. You see, we we can undergo situations and circumstances. We can only imagine what it may be like and hope for the best. Not with Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. To the umpteenth detail, You see, last Sunday we celebrated Palm Sunday. This was, Jesus had been staying at Bethany and this was his entrance into Jerusalem. And this is when he said, my hour has come. Jesus forced the timetable by coming into Jerusalem. You see, from the very time Jesus came into this world, he came into this world for one purpose. That was to go to the cross to die for you, to die for me. And so when the time was right, when Jesus was 33 and a half years old. He told his disciples. It's time for us to enter Jerusalem. And of course you know. As we discussed in Palm Sunday. People were cheering him. And praising him. And hollering. "Hosanna, oh, that the same now? But as God's word tells us. John chapter 6. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. He knew they were. Wanting a different Jesus than whom he was. Jesus did not come to save a kingdom, the people of Israel, to throw off the Roman yoke of bondage. He came to save mankind for all time and to give us eternal life and throw off the yoke of bondage that Satan had put around our necks, a chain of death and misery. He came for something much greater than one particular geographical location, one particular time and space. But when he came into Jerusalem, he forced, by his purpose, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes to put into motion all those things that were going to happen immediately in accordance with the time that Jesus wanted them to happen. Years ago when I was in Bible college, I had a brilliant professor by the name of Dr. George Anderson. And uh, this was the most righteous man I've ever known in my life, without exception. And in teaching one day, in a Bible survey class, he said, when you study the Scripture, put yourself in the picture. Put yourself in the situation. And I'll be honest with you, it makes the Scripture come alive. But it does something else too. Every resurrection Sunday we have celebrated at Freedom Hall or wherever, I put myself in the picture, and it is devastatingly hard to endure. You see, after Palm Sunday, Jesus went back to Bethany, and I want you to walk with me and the disciples as we do this narrative of the end of the Passion Week. So Jesus went back to Bethany, and now he was coming back into Jerusalem. Because now you have to realize, a few years after this, about six years after this particular event, a Jewish historian who was a historian for the Roman government, was by the name of Flavius Josephus. And he kept a record that there was a census in Jerusalem of how many sheep were killed during the time of the Passover. Now, each lamb that was killed required a minimum of 10 people. And the census that was taken demonstrated that there had been 256,000 sheep sacrificed during the time of the Passover. Now, a 10 person, a sheep, That was over two and a half million people crammed into Jerusalem for the Passover. What is the Passover? The Jews knew what it meant. The Passover is when the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. And Moses and Aaron went there by direction of God Almighty to have the children of Israel delivered from Pharaoh. And God tells us of the different plagues and such. His Word tells us that all these things that were done to break Pharaoh's heart. But God's Word tells us, and we see this in Romans 9 as well as the next, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Why? All because of the sovereign purpose of God Almighty. And God said finally to the children of Israel, told Moses to inform the children of Israel, I want you to take a hyssop branch, I want you to sacrifice a lamb. Dip the hyssop branch into the blood. And if you will take that branch and wipe the blood of the sacrifice over the door lintel and the door posts, the angel of death is going to pass through the country. And when the angel of death sees the blood over your doorway, he will pass by and everyone in your house will live. If you don't, death. Will visit that household. And so ever since then the children of Israel. Would celebrate. The feast of the unleavened. Or the Passover. You see the Passover in the Old Testament. With the killing and the sacrifice of sheep. Was a type of shadow of that which was to be fulfilled. In Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our Passover. He was the lamb, as Isaiah 53 tells us, that was without spot, was without blemish, that went to the slaughter and did not open his mouth. He did it because of love. So Jesus now going back into Jerusalem because the Passover was to be celebrated in Jerusalem. And two of the disciples that Thursday morning. Said, so, Lord, it's time for the Passover. It's time for the preparation. Jesus said, I want you to go in on in to Jerusalem, and you'll see a man carrying a container, a jar of water. I want you to go to him and say, uh, The Lord is coming to your house to celebrate and observe the Passover. And sure enough, it's been speculated it was James and John. They went to Jerusalem and they saw the man with a jar of water on his head. The reason why he would stand out is normally this was a woman's job. And so obviously he stood out in the midst. But I think it's more than that. You see, I think that there are certain theologians like William Barclay who said, Jesus had already secretly gone in and made arrangements with this man. And I just don't picture Jesus slipping around and doing anything in secret. I think Jesus, the one who created the heavens and the earth and put a name on each star, doesn't need to slip around. He puts thoughts in our head. He will lead us. He will guide us. His Holy Spirit power is stronger than greater than our own inclinations. I commit my work unto Him. Establish my thoughts. He knows our down-sitting, our rising He knows our thoughts are far off. And I think perhaps this gentleman may have been a follower of Jesus. And all he needed to hear were the disciples of Jesus saying, the Lord has needed your place and he's coming there to observe the Passover. And so they went and they purchased the lamb. We're not told about uh, when it was sacrificed, whatever. But they had to go in to to prepare what is called the cedar meal. And it would contain various bitter herbs, and it would contain uh, one mixture of, of figs and raisins and apples that represented the mortar that was holding the bricks together in Egypt. Uh, and they would have these different uh, representations, symbolic of the Passover and the deliverance of the children of Israel. So all these things had to be uh, portrayed, and the wine that was put on the table that represented the new wine and the freedom, the deliverance from bondage. And so all these things were put together. So Jesus, with his twelve disciples, went to the upper room to observe the Passover late that Thursday evening. You see, you have to remember that the time periods for a day, evening of the next day didn't start till six p.m. And so this help you understand the timetable of three days on the third day rising from the tomb. But somebody was there in the midst of the disciples who was a liar, who was a thief, who was devious. And the whole reason that he was following Jesus is because he thought Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom and he wanted a part in it. When all of a sudden he realized that the elders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had met and had already determined that they wanted to kill Jesus by hook or crook or by any means. Anyway, they could twist the law. They wanted Jesus to die. He realized that his earthly kingdom, Judas did, that it wasn't going to come about. And so it's been speculated. Maybe one reason Judas did this is he thought he could force Jesus' hand. Because you remember all those multitudes a week ago who were hauling, so what was that? I say it now. He thought here is a large group of people plus the zealots that's in the crowd who want to overthrow the Yoke of bondage by the Roman government. Maybe this will stir him up. Perhaps Judas thought that I'll force Jesus' hand, and he'll he'll take up arms. But he had no clue, not even the rest of the eleven disciples, as to what Jesus' true plan was until after the resurrection. But whatever the reason Judas hid in his heart, he had gone to the temple. He cut a deal for thirty pieces of silver. He would deliver Jesus. Jesus. The one who is pure, holy, righteous, good, kind, compassionate, merciful. You know, to this day, I don't understand why the teaching of Jesus, why the reference to Jesus is so offensive to those who do not know Him, who claim to be atheistic or agnostic. What is the danger of Jesus? He taught us to love our enemies. He he taught us to have compassion upon others. He taught us to turn the other. What teaching about Jesus scares the unbeliever to the point of hatred and even violence? What is it about Jesus? If we could dare to try to emulate Him microscopically, this world would be a much, much better place. And so... There that night at the Passover, Jesus knew, he knew, he knew all along who was going to betray him. And so, while they were there and they were having the meal, Jesus made the comment, "There is one here who is going to betray me." And this Judas decided to betray Jesus for thirty pieces of silver. But let me tell you something. There are many people who will betray Jesus for a whole lot less. According to today's currency, those 30 pieces of silver were worth over probably $1,000. But there are people who will deny Jesus just because of peer pressure. Because they may not appear to be an elitist in our modern society. Because they they may feel that it doesn't demonstrate an intellectualism that they want to appear so smart. But God's word tells us. The fool has said in his heart. There is no God. So Jesus knew exactly who would betray him. He knew it was in his heart. And Jesus told the disciples there. There is one here who is going to betray me. And immediately all the disciples. Perhaps uh, they were all like all mankind. Were feeling somewhat. Uh, not sure of themselves. Inadequate. Perhaps not having the confidence that they thought they had. And so all of a sudden, the disciples started hollering, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Is it I? And then Jesus said this. He said, he who puts his hand in the spot is the one who will betray me. And they're all thinking We all have. And that's the point that Jesus wanted them to think. Make your calling and election sure. Each one of you checked himself. And when Judas did, Jesus looked at him. And here's what Jesus said. What thou doest, go and do quickly. And God's word said immediately the devil filled Judas. I know this day of scientific <laughs> uh, revelations, so many people don't believe in a heaven or hell. They don't believe in demonizing uh, people and countries. But God's Word says these things are true. Uh, I and my wife and I have ministered in the country of Haiti numerous times. It's called the Island of Blue Waters and Black Magic. And trust me, they believe in demons and the, the, the demonic is evident there. And so when Judas was filled with the devil, he went out. He went straight to the temple and he said, I can deliver to you Jesus this very night. Well, the other eleven disciples and Jesus. You see, Jesus wanted Judas to get gone because he had some things he wanted to tell the other eleven. And he told them what was going to come about. And Simon Peter said, uh, Lord, not I. He said, I believe you because Jesus said, According to the scripture, you see all the scripture, the prophetic scripture, the messianic scripture of the Old Testament. Hundreds of years before it happened, Jesus fulfilled in the utmost detail. This is beyond the possibility of coincidence. It was fulfillment. And Jesus quoted the scripture where it says that they shall slay the shepherd and the sheep shall scatter. And Jesus said this night, this shall be fulfilled. And they all said, no, no, Lord, no way. And Simon Peter even said, if everybody deserts you, Lord, I won't. You see, even that statement was totally contrary to the nature of Jesus. There's no room for pride and arrogance in the presence of God. God says, His Word tells us that He resists the proud, but He draws nigh to the humble. But we can understand Simon Peter's heart. He loved Jesus so much. He's a very impulsive person. But he loved Jesus. And sometimes I I think that the only time or most of the time that we read in the New Testament before, before the resurrection that Simon Peter opened his mouth was to change feet. And Jesus said, I've told you, Simon Peter, that the devil has desired you to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. Pray that you be delivered. And before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. No, Lord, not me. Supper so being in it, Jesus got up and he put a towel around it. And in John chapter 13, we see something that's very remarkable. Jesus, our Lord and Master, put a towel on and humbled himself. And went to Simon Peter to wash his feet. You see, as soon as they were in the upper room, one of the disciples should have humbled himself and went and washed Jesus' feet. It was customary because it was such a dry and arid land that when somebody came into your home, the servant of the house would wash the guest's feet. But Jesus saw everybody was too concerned about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of God that not at the meal. So Jesus got up. And he wrapped himself in a cloth and he went over to Simon Peter to wash his feet. And Peter said, no, Lord, no, no. And Jesus said, Simon, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, well then, Lord, not just my feet, but my head, my body. Jesus said, no, you're clean, but not all. And at that, he spoke of the 12 disciples, one being gone, but also he talked about how that they were his children they had been hit, They are His elect, but not all was fulfilled until we're home with the Lord. You see, so many of the churches throughout history have observed what's called the, the love feast, feet washing service. Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist—they all used to observe it till around the beginning of the 19th century. that mankind got too proud. It is a humbling thing to be part of a feet-washing service. It's spiritually moving. To me, it's not repulsive to wash somebody's feet. But it is very difficult to watch somebody wash my feet. And I want to be like Simon Peter. No, Lord, no. But we must learn to humble ourselves as a little child. And God's Word tells us, in Philippians too, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, is Lord. And so they left the upper room. And they were heading to the Mount of Olives. And they crossed the Kidron River. And on the way to Gethsemane. Which means an olive press. A place where there was olive trees. And perhaps a grotto where they had a press. That they would squeeze out the olives. And here were there's three entrances. Around the Mount of Olives. Jesus stopped His 11 disciples and He said, look, I'm going to go on by myself and pray. You stay here. And Jesus picked two more of His disciples. He said, the inner circle, He said, but I want you to come with me. You see, Jesus Christ is very God. But He's also very man. And His human nature Needed that fellowship, wanted that fellowship, even though he knew, as we said before, he knew to the umpteenth detail of what was going to happen. And so they went a little way in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus told these disciples, wait here, watch, and pray. And we know that Jesus went a little further and said he fell on his face and prayed. And as he prayed, he asked the father, if it be thy will, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You see, I believe the reason why Jesus fell on his face is because the worst of this whole situation is not so much the pain, the physical pain that was coming up. But the spiritual pain he was going to feel. Because you see. All of my sin. All of your sin. Started to come upon Jesus. He who knew not sin. Became sin for us. That we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The one thing that Jesus Christ did not want to endure. In this whole scenario. This whole crucifixion, resurrection scenario, the one thing he did not want is to feel sin. He had never known sin. It's beyond his capability. Even though God's word says he was tempted at all points as we are yet without sin, he did not want to feel the dirt, the grime, the guilt of sin. And so he went out to see his disciples and they were asleep. Jesus said spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he went back and prayed again. Come back and they were asleep. He said, could you not watch one hour? The majority of Bibles today are covered in dust. It's been speculated maybe only 12% of born-again Christians read their Bible on a regular basis. What? Could you not watch and pray for one hour? Jesus went back to pray. He came out again. He said, "Arise, for my captors are coming up the path itself." And I'm sure they were confused by what he was talking about. Jesus knew that Judas Iscariot had gone back to the temple, and the temple guards, and even a a delegation from the Roman government—they were coming up the pathway. That's where Jesus had been praying in the garden of Gethsemane. And Jews had made a deal with them that whoever I kiss on the cheek, this is the one who is Jesus. And it's not that they needed that. They had to know who Jesus was. Everybody, when he came into Jerusalem, who was praising him? The people all over, the miracles, the followings that he had. But nevertheless, this is all part of the fulfillment of Scripture. And when Judas showed up, they said that he kissed Jesus vigorously on the cheek. They said Jesus looked at him. And here's something that's so powerful and so amazing. The guards and the people who came to arrest Jesus looked at Jesus and said, Are you Jesus of Nazareth? And when many people read this passage of Scripture, they don't understand the power it's contained in it. Because the next thing it says is they fell to the ground. Because why did they fall to the ground? Because Jesus answered them in the affirmative. Here's why. Jesus said in the Greek, Ego, me." Now if he had just said Ego, it would have meant divine I am. But when jesus said a go a e me he said i am that i am and what that meant was it went back to when moses and the burning bush and when god identified himself to moses he said i am that i am and when jesus said that it was like a burst of his kind of glory that dropped them to the ground nobody stands in the presence of the living God. It was like for a moment the curtain was pulled back and his true deity radiated and Simon Peter. The one who uh, was often emotionally stirred. He had a sword. And he took that sword and he drew back and he he swung at one of the temple guard's head and cut off his ear. Now here's what you need to know. He was not aiming at his ear. About three inches over is what he was aiming at. But God is in control of every minute detail. And the servant's name was Malchus. And as Simon Peter swung that sword, he severed Malchus's ear. And Jesus told Simon Peter, put up the sword. For all who live by the sword shall die by the sword. And he reattached and healed Malchus' ear right in front of him. And so they bound Jesus' hands and they led him down the path. And they were taking him to the temple. And on the way, they took him to the father in law of Caiaphas, Caiaphas being the high priest. His name was Annas. Now why they took him to Annas? Many have speculated because of the influence and at one time he had been high priest. they took him to Annas and said, this is the one, this is the man who calls himself the Christ, the Messiah. And Annas said, take him bound to Caiaphas. And so Simon Peter and the beloved disciple followed far behind. The beloved disciple was known by those who were in the temple. And so Simon Peter had access as a result of John knowing who was in the temple. And he he told them, let uh, the the guards there at the temple said, let uh, let this man in, being Simon Peter. And Simon Peter went over to where the fire was built and the uh, temple guards were gathered around. He was standing there warming himself. They escorted Jesus into the presence of Caiaphas. So you're the one they call jesus the christ is that true jesus never opened his mouth do you not know who i am and know the power i have and i'm asking you jesus never opened his mouth and the reason being is because of the scriptural prophecy of isaiah 53 as a lamb not opening his mouth going to the slaughter and they asked jesus again And they were looking for witnesses. But all the witnesses they had, their stories were contradicting each other except for two. And their testimony was accurate but taken totally out of context. They said, we heard Jesus say looking at the temple, destroy this temple and in three days I will resurrect it. And he did not mean the architectural temple was built. He meant his body. And so when they had two people that agreed on something that Jesus said, they said, we have you. Now, are you Jesus who claims to be the Christ? And Jesus raised his head and said, it's as you said. At that moment, Caius ripped his clothes of people standing around. They threw a, a blind over his head. And they started slapping him, spitting upon him. And I think the irony is, as they slapped him, they said, Who am I? If you're the Messiah, if you're the Christ, if you're God incarnate, tell me who I am. You would know who I am. And I thought, man, oh man, can you imagine on the judgment day? Can you imagine when they stood before Jesus? And the very ones who said, what is my name? That Jesus looked at and told them their name. Hell is horrible, but the anticipation is even worse. And so, as they beat on Jesus, they spit upon Jesus, they said to take Caiaphas over to the Sanhedrin. And as he was passing from one part of the temple, from Caiaphas, over to the Sanhedrin, you see, it's one thing to have uh, a a crime uh, designated, but it had to have the entire boat of the Sanhedrin. They wanted to make sure everything was in perfect order so that they could kill Jesus. They didn't want to miss anything. And as they were passing by, just prior to that, there was one woman who was kept the gate there. She had, who came in, who went out. She looked at Simon Peter. She said, "Aren't you one of the people who followed Jesus?" He said, "I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about." She said, "No, no, no, no. You, you're, you're one of them." He said, "No, no, no, no." See, at that time, Simon Peter thought, "I, I got to." so he trying to get out the gate he wouldn't let him out the gate so he went back to the fire and another woman who was taking her place is a shift change and she she was related to Malchus, whose ear was severed and he looked at her she looked at him and she said I know you were one of that man's disciples said because your accent betrays you as a Galilean and Simon Peter didn't just say no he started to use profanity to show that there he wasn't a follower of Jesus. He said that, See, there's one sure way to know who uh, who belongs to the Lord and who doesn't because out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Even though he belonged to the Lord at this moment he was weak, he was scared and he started cursing and saying, I don't know this man. And again, they he said, No, 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 you are. And the third time Simultaneously, two things happened. When Jesus, when, when Simon Peter said for the third time, I am not, that's when they were bringing Jesus from Caiaphas and taking him to the Sanhedrin. And at that very moment, when Simon Peter denied him for the third time, the rooster crowed. And at that very moment, Jesus looked over the fire that Simon Peter was standing at and looked at Simon Peter. If we could see in the eyes of the Lord the hurt and the pain we do when we sin. We who claim to be his children, his followers. If we could imagine eyes so pure as those of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is so pure and holy and good and kind that children were magnetically drawn to him. And at that moment he looked in Simon Peter's eyes. Simon Peter. Him to die. The fact is, it said that he ran. Simon Peter ran from the fire. He ran. He didn't stop running until he's outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And it said that he was devastated. He was devastated. He wept bitterly. He looked up and he called on God forgiveness. He had realized that he had denied his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, being left from the Sanhedrin back to Caiaphas, he said, we want you to be taken to the procurator. We want you to be taken to Pilate. Because they wanted Pilate, who had the ability to declare execution. With Roman government in charge, the Jews, the temple guards, did not have the power to do that. The Roman government had the power to do that. And so as a result, when when, when Judas Iscariot had realized this, Judas Iscariot realized that, wait a minute, this was the king of kings and the lord of lords that I had betrayed. This is the one who was Nothing but kindness. For the first time, I think Judas Iscariot realized who Jesus really was. So Judas Iscariot went back to the temple and he said, uh, I have I have sinned against innocent blood. And he told the temple priest he wanted to get the money back. And he said this, but no, we don't take that's blood money, it doesn't come into the temple, it doesn't come in here. And it said that Judas Iscariot took the money and he threw it. And it's believed that when he threw it in the temple, they went past the sanctuary of the holy and perhaps slid into the behind the curtain to the holy of holies. And at this point, Judas Iscariot was overwhelmed with guilt and sorrow. You know, it's been speculated that Judas Iscariot have asked for forgiveness from God and been saved. No. Now, because we know in John 17 when Jesus prayed, Jesus said, I have kept all that you have given me except the son of perdition that all would be fulfilled. You see, Judas was sorry. A lot of people would be sorry for what they have done but not repented. A lot of people would be sorry that they got caught, but not sorry enough to really pray that they wish they could go back. See, all of us, all of us, would love to go back in time to change something or many things we have done. But once it's done, it cannot be changed. Water that flows underneath the bridge cannot come back again. Milk that is still can't go back in the glass again. So we either live with the guilt, we try to justify the guilt, or we take it to the one who can wash it all away. You see, when the blood of Jesus Christ covers our sin, it's as though it never happened. You get that? Whatever you have done wrong, you have prayed with a broken and as God's word says. In Psalm 51, A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, that will not despise. If your heart is broken and contrite over the things you have done and you've taken it to Jesus, if you have humbled yourself before the living God and asked Him to cover you under the blood of Jesus, though my sins be a scarlet, I shall be white as snow. And it's as though it never happened. Why? God's Word says, I forgive your sin and remember them no more. He blots out our transgressions. And remembers them no more. So that we can be set free. He said, but Pastor, you don't know what I have done. It doesn't matter. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteous. Paul had helped kill the, the, the prophet Stephen. Paul, and most of the New Testament has been written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the Apostle Paul. That's how mighty God used somebody who helped kill one of his own. So don't say that you don't know what I've done. God does. And he can blot it out and remove it. Judas spirit huh? wasn't of a broken, contrite heart because of the anguish of what he's done. He knew that he was caught by the living God. Instead, he went out and he hung himself. The priests picked up the thirty pieces of silver and they bought what's called the Potter's Field. And for people who were strangers, Gentiles, and thieves and suicides were buried in Potter's Field outside of the walls of Jerusalem. So they brought Jesus Christ to the Praetorium. This is where Caliphus was at. I'm sorry, Pilate was at. And it's been rumored that uh, Pilate knew that something big was going to happen. Now, Pilate, he is a personality study within himself. Nobody wanted to go to be a procurator in Jerusalem. It was a place of constant arguments, a place of constant riot. The Jewish people could not be brought under total submission to the Roman government. Nobody wanted that. But apparently Pilate wasn't the top-notch uh, soldier. commander, and for whatever reason he was sent there and he hated it he hated the jews he hated the countryside he hated it and he didn't want to be there and pilate's biggest fear was that there was going to be a riot and he would be removed and even given a worse situation or dismissed altogether and so when they brought jesus to him they said we want to have him crucified it's very important that I share something with you about crucifixion. Do you realize the Jews had no concept of what a crucifixion was until the Roman government took over? So all the prophecies in the Old Testament that said that the Messiah would be hung on a tree, for all those hundreds of years, the Jews had no idea what that meant. They had no concept of crucifixion. And the Jews who knew the agony that a man's body could undergo had brought to these lands in Jerusalem, in Israel, the concept of the crucifixion. In fact, there were so many crucifixions that it is said along the appealing way that the crosses could lie on each side of the road of those that crucified. And so, Pilate said, well, what did he do? He said, he claims to be the Son of God. And Pilate laughed and said, What's that to me? Take him and judge him according to your laws. What's that got to do with me? They said, here's where they got the concern Pilate. They said, According to our law he should die. And if you do not carry forth our wish, we're going to let Rome know that you're not upholding and ruling Jerusalem well. And last thing Pilate wanted. Was word to get back to Rome that he wasn't handling the situation. In fact, there had been a time that he had. There was riots going on in Jerusalem, and he had basically put a line in the dirt and said, "If you people cross this line, you're going to pay for it." Well, they crossed the line, and he didn't do nothing, so he lost authority with the Jewish people. But when they said that if you do not crucify Jesus of Nazareth, we're going to report you to Jerusalem, and so Pilate said. Uh, All right, let me talk to you. So Pilate came inside, brought Jesus inside. He said, what are these things they're saying about you? Are you indeed the one that they claim that you are, that you're the king of the Jews, that you're the son of God? And Jesus looked at him and said, it's as you say. This scared Pilate to death. And here's the reason it scared him. Being from Rome, he knew of the mythological teachings, the pagan teachings, that oftentimes in these pagan teachings, it was not uncommon for a god from, and drawing from the Greek mythology, a god would come down and, and go having with an earthly woman, and then they would bring forth a, a god man, and he thought, could this be one of those? And so when Jesus said it's as you said, Pilate was scared for more than just one reason. He was not only scared that he'd be removed from Rome. He was scared that on a supernatural, spiritual level, that maybe indeed, this is a God-man. And so Pilate didn't want nothing to do with it. He sent him back out to the people, to the priests. He said, I I find no fault in this man. And again, by this time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the temple priests had gone among the people and had uh, verbally... Attack Jesus Christ and try to get the people stirred up. Because, remember, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, all these people who were crying, Hosanna, say now, they all thought Jesus Christ was going to come and set Israel free, was going to, to have a, an insurrection to overthrow the Roman yoke of, of bondage. And now they realize that Jesus has been arrested. And since Jesus has, has been have already gone before the high priest in the sanhedrin and now sent to the procurator Pilate that this isn't going to happen there's not going to be an earthly kingdom there's not going to be an independence from Rome and so they were mad they were upset they were disappointed this one that they had followed they had heard of his miracles it says the one that they had they was not the Jesus they thought or wanted And so as a result, they hated him. And so the priests, they went out and and they stirred the people up. And again, the priest told Pilate, if you don't take care of this, you'll not be able to rule Jerusalem. If you don't take care of this, Rome is going to know about it. And so again, Pilate took Jesus back inside the praetorium. He said, tell me, are you the Christ? And again, Jesus let him know. Jesus then looked at him and said, basically knowing that Pilate was trying to way in the world to be able to release him. Jesus told Pilate, he said, if it were not given unto you, you would have no power to condemn me, you would have no power to crucify me, but if it it were not given from above. And Pilate said, do you not know who I am? (laughs) Mankind is so puffed up and arrogant. We see it in politicians, we see it in people in prominence and professional fields who it was a saying my dad used to have, i like to buy them for what they're worth and, uh, and sell them for what they think they're worth. There's a lot of people like that today. They read their own press. And uh, Pilate was letting Jesus know that uh, I, I am the procurator. I can set you free. I have the power of life and death in my hand. Jesus told him, no, no, no. you see, here's what he amazed Pilate. Jesus didn't come in whimpering and cowering like any kind of prisoner he'd ever seen before. In fact, you've got to realize it was not Jesus on trial here. It was Pilate who was on trial. And he didn't know him at first. Because Jesus talked to him as an equal. This blew Pilate's mind. This wasn't any kind of... He did not have a persona. This man was unlike any man he'd ever met before. And he didn't want anything to do with this. And Jesus said, since you're a judge, a judge can recognize the truth when he hears it. Pilate said, truth? Truth? What is truth? And the irony of he was looking in the face of pure truth. Because Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes into the Father but by me. He didn't realise, Pilate didn't that. He was looking at the epitomization of truth. In this day and time, truth becomes so relative. Truth becomes to whatever statistics you want to make up in your mind to realize in your weakened thinking that the end justifies the means. If you want to see abortion legalized to kill living babies, then make up unbelievable statistics. Make up hideous stories of back alley abortion. Make up whatever, and you call it the truth. It's like Jesus said of those who were against him. He said, you are of your father the devil, Satan, and the works of your father you will do. They didn't want the truth. Pilate was standing in the very presence of truth. So Pilate sent him to the guards. They took a cat of nine tails and they tied Jesus up and they ripped the flesh from his body. And then they took an old robe there and discarded it and they threw it on him. They took a some thorns and he knitted those thorns and thrust them down on his head and said behold the king of the Jews and he put a scepter and started hitting him on the head Pilate came out and he said brought him the emaciated Jesus the attacked Jesus the brutalized Jesus he said here I find no halt in him and he washed his hands thinking he could wash his hands but you don't wash your hands. They gave Jesus his cross and he dragged that cross down the Via Della Rosa the way of tears. They took it to Golgotha, and they laid him down on this cross and they pierced his hands and his feet. And he was hung between two robbers. And Jesus hung there for six and a half hours suffering the most excruciating form of death man has been able to devise. Every time he would try to pull himself up to get air in his lungs, he would have to lower himself down and pull these wounds in his hands and feet every time that he would do that. It was unbelievable the pain he went through. He said, at one point, I thirst, and he tried to take a a sponge filled with a type of uh, medication That would dull the pain. So he would live longer. And people would get their jollies from it. And Jesus wouldn't drink it. Because he needed. He needed. To die. And to die this way. Here's something you need to know. Jesus could have stopped it. At any time he wanted to. There you see. There were 12 legions of angels in the air. How do I know this? Because Jesus Christ said. Don't you know. That if I wanted to. I could call 12 legions. That's over 3,000 times 12 of angels to stop this. And the angels wanted to stop it, but when Jesus was on the cross, he said, No, this must be done because it was love for you and me. And finally, the last thing that Jesus said was, and it said that he said it in a loud voice. In the Aramaic, it is, to tell us die and what that meant was it's finished it's finished it's paid when he was on the cross never had a man ever been alone as much as Jesus Christ was at that moment while he was hanging there he cried forth repeating the Psalm 22 22, Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani my God my God why hast thou forsaken me the sky turned dark and the was in tune and soldier standing there saying truly this was the Son of God. Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Jesus Christ. They prepared his body and laid it in the tomb. A barred tomb and he sealed it up. The next day was the Jewish Sabbath Saturday. Nothing was done. and early on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to add spices to the wrappings to the body of Jesus. And when she got there, the stone was rolled away. Some have declared what's called the swoon theory. That Well, maybe he just uh, wasn't dead. He, he woke up and stumbled out. And well, then who moved the stone? The Roman guards? No. Who moved the stone? And she looked in. And she saw that the tomb was empty. She was in the garden. She started crying. And all of a sudden she heard a voice. At first she thought it was the gardener. Then she heard so clearly and distinctly. Mary. And she looked up. She said go now. And tell the disciples. That I have risen like I said. And go ahead into Galilee. And I will meet him there. Folks. He did all this for you. He did it for me. For God so loved you. That he gave his only begotten son. That if you will believe in him. You shall not perish. But have everlasting life. If we confess with our mouth. The Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in our heart. That God has raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. If you would like to have him. As your Lord and Savior. Pray with me now. Dear Jesus. Forgive me of all my sins. Come into my heart and save me. I receive you as my Lord, my God, and my personal Savior. Holy Spirit, please fill me to overflowing. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. At this time, I'd like to invite you to uh, come to Fountain Life Bible Church. We preach the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it's the Word of God. And at this time, we have a, a song that I think that you would like to hear. So if you will, please listen closely to the words of this song. The gates and doors are barred